Welcome to Ashes with Ash, the podcast bringing you audio stories from your cigar aficionado community around the world. Join me on this adventure to seek out the most incredible stories from our cigar lounge friends, owners, and customers. Let's tap into these stories with a little smoke and ash. Welcome back to another episode of the Ashes with Ash podcast. I have had a lovely month off reconnecting with family and friends after moving back to Virginia at the end of last December, but boy have I missed you all. Let me give you some updates that are happening with the Ashes with Ash podcast. First of all, it's February, which means that this is the two-year anniversary of starting this podcast, and I cannot thank you all enough for supporting me and my friends that I've met from all over the world that have been generous enough to share their stories with me and teaching me so much about cigars in the cigar world, and to my podcast friends like Aaron from the Straight Cut Podcast and Mike from the Shirtless Mike Herf and Rob from Cigar Talk. Thank you guys for all of your advice and support while getting this new world of podcasting going. And thank you to Liam and TJ who are always hyping me up and supporting my journey with this. You guys are awesome. Thanks so much to all of you. And I know some of you may be wondering still why I moved out of New York City. And while I still can't tell you exactly what my plan is yet, I want to mention this. So... The very last words that my pap ever said to me before he passed was, follow your dreams. And I want to point out that dreams is plural. I had a dream to move to New York City and I did it. And now I have a new dream, so I'm in Virginia here to make it happen. Don't ever let a dream you've had hold you back from having new dreams or multiple dreams no matter how different they are from each other follow them all you're allowed to change your mind you will change constantly throughout your life so don't let yourself stay stuck in one place just because you said you wanted to do one thing one time change your mind change your environment change your outlook on life whatever changes you go through follow them and be exactly who you are in the moment that you are in it so that's what i'm doing I'm working part-time as a veterinary scribe and working for my dad's shop a little bit and I'm privileged enough to have more time right now to focus on my podcast and all of you. So I'm excited to say there will now be consistent weekly episodes for you all to listen to every Sunday. Every Sunday you'll get a new episode um, with a new guest each time in the cigar world and some that aren't in the cigar world at all. I've got some really cool people for you to meet, including our guest today, Anne Montgomery. She was one of the first female sports broadcasters. She's here to tell us her experience in jumping into a male-dominated field and how she grew her career with a fierce boldness and how she worked her ass off to become exactly who she knew she wanted to be since high school. Plus, she talks about how she's a scuba diver, a hockey player, a foster mom, a teacher, a journalist, an author. This woman is a major inspiration for success, and I cannot wait for you to hear her story. I love you guys. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you enjoy the episode. All righty. So... 
the reason I want, I know you don't smoke cigars, so this might be like, no, what I are don't. you doing here? <laughs> I was talking about that this morning when I was walking my dog with my partner, and I'm like, I don't know. He goes, what's today's podcast? I said, it's about cigars. And he goes, yeah. you don't smoke cigars. I said, she told me that was okay. <laughs> yes, it is. So you just have such a massive career background. And one of the reasons it stood out to me is that you started by jumping into a male dominated field. And that's kind of what women are doing in the cigar industry right now. Oh, so okay. I thought it'd be really cool to have you on and get your advice and just learn about your successes and see what you've done. And then also your success stories and advice would just be beneficial to everyone all of my listeners because you just have such a huge background I think it's so cool and then also might have been a little selfish because I've been a little obsessed with broadcasting stuff lately since I started the podcast so I just want to know everything well it's been an adventure I can say that (laughs) yeah I bet okay so what started off your broadcasting career and why sports broadcasting Good question. Um, I grew up uh, before Title IX, which meant that there there were some sports girls could play in high school, but I, I wasn't involved in them necessarily. But I did grow up near an ice rink. So when I was five, my dad took me ice skating and I wanted to be an Olympic gold medalist in ice skating. I'm a really mediocre skater, or I was, and uh, I ended up being an ice dancer. And so I had these visions of gold medals, but I really, I, I was... 50 pounds too heavy. Those skaters are little tiny people. And I was just too big and I wasn't that good. Today, I'd play hockey because girls can do that now. But I was, so I was an ice skater. So I had these dreams of, I understood what you have to put into being an athlete, but again, not very good. So then I also got into theater. And and I truly loved being on stage. I I was in about a dozen musicals and um, over the years but mostly in high school. So one day my mother came up to me and she goes, well, we have to decide where you're going to go to college. So what do you want to be? And don't think you're going to be an actress. I went, okay. Um, And I went, meh. I, mom, I I was involved with a radio program at school. And one day I went in and I pulled all the sports stories. It was like we did the morning announcements kind of thing. And I, for some reason, pulled all the sports stories and, and I started to read them. The guys were arguing with me. They said, you can't read the sports. You're a girl. And I went, well, that's not right. And the man who was the head of the the broadcast crew was also the director of all the plays. So I knew him very well. And they said, if Annie wants to read the sports, she can. So I was like, cool. And and so the guys gave me all kinds of crap. In fact, they gave me a theme song. It was the one from Mission Impossible. And, And then they gave me the name Big Ann. And they'd say, okay, now it's time for Big Ann with the sports. And they'd go, da, 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 play the music. And they were making fun of me, but I liked it. Oh my gosh. And and soon all the sports teams in our high school uh started handing me the sports announcements. Nice. So when my mother said, What do you want to be? I went, a sportscaster. And she looked at me and she said, Don't be ridiculous. I'm trying to have a serious conversation with you because this was like 1976. No, 1972. There weren't women sportscasters. There just weren't. I was an idiot. I I really had no idea that this was an impossible thing. So uh, when I went to college, I studied communications, journalism, and told my professors I wanted to be a sportscaster. And they said, you can't. You're a girl. And yet they allowed me to work on a sports show that was done by the PBS affiliate at my university. And I went out and the football coach, the baseball coach, and the basketball coach, none of them would speak to me. They wouldn't even let me interview them. 
And then I've, I found all these other teams, wrestling, gymnastics, swimming, uh, all these other teams that never got any sports coverage. And they were like, oh, please cover us. So I got to go out and do some reporting. But that was about all I knew about sports broadcasting. So when I got out of college, um, I moved to Washington, D.C., and I couldn't get an interview anywhere, anywhere. And I was a waitress in a Tony Georgetown restaurant, which was very much fun, I must say. And my parents staged an intervention with me, like, we put you through college, you're a waitress, this is so embarrassing for the family. But they didn't understand I had a plan. Because I went to a hockey game one night, a, a Washington Capitals game with my aunt, and her friend came with us, and he was a an amateur sports official. He was a hockey official for little kids, you know, youth hockey. And he was bemoaning the fact that there weren't any officials. And my aunt goes, oh, Annie can skate, not mentioning I'd never been on hockey skates. I'd only ever been on figure skates. So I went, yeah, he goes, you want to be a referee? And I said, sure, why not? And so I signed up to be a referee. Never had been on hockey skates till that first game. And the kids were like five. Have you ever seen little tiny kids play hockey? Like their jerseys are at their ankles. Oh and they're leaning on those little sawed off sticks and their helmets are askew. And I looked down and I'm going to take my first face off. And I fell. No. I'm lying on the ice. I, and I, do uh, you know the difference between hockey skates and figure skates? They're like a lot bigger, aren't they? Well, they, they do look bigger, but they don't have toe picks on the blades. Hockey skates are round. Figure skates have toe picks. So I was a lazy skater and I was used to hopping up on my toe picks all the time. So I hopped up and I fell down again. I fell three times before I took that first face off. Now, I don't remember the rest of the game, but I remember driving home from it going, hey, wait a minute. I never got to play the five main team spectator sports, football, baseball, ice hockey, soccer, and basketball. So I decided that I would become a certified amateur official in all five of those sports. I would do it for five years. And then I would convince some forward thinking news director that I could be a competent sportscaster. And that's what happened. Amazing. It took till I was 28. Yeah. I mean, I've been out of college for six years. My parents were horrified. They didn't even talk to me for a long time because it was embarrassing to think. They said, what do we tell our friends when they say, what are you doing? I said, tell them I'm a referee, mom. Yeah. And it didn't go over. But so anyway, I did finally get that first job, uh, which led to four more. So I worked for five TV stations over the years as a sportscaster. But it was the 80s, 90s. And no, people didn't think I belonged there. But, you know, I've pushed through it. That's amazing. Okay. So hold on. back up a little bit. When you, you fell three times in that game, but you yep. still, when you left there, you were I like, this is what I want to do. Yes. Like, yes. Oh. And the, the, the ironic part is I looked at officiating as a means to an end. Right. I wanted a job in broadcasting as a sports reporter. I wanted to show that I understood the games because who understands the games better than the officials? Right. Nobody Nobody else reads the rule book, not the coaches, not the players. They don't. I did for years. The weird thing was when I finally got a job in television, I couldn't bring myself to quit officiating. So I officiated for 40 years. Wow. Yeah. I ended up doing baseball for about 25 and football for 40. So I retired from football in 2019 and it still makes me sad. Oh my I gosh. I, bet I miss football. But uh, yeah, you remember when they told us sports were good for us? Yeah. It's a lie. It? I've had everything x-rayed, MRI, no. uh, surgeries. Oh, yeah. If they ever, uh, yeah, if someone ever abducted me and dismembered me, they could identify me from any piece they found because they've all been x-rayed. Wow. So 
I, I now, I no longer am physically able to do football. I'm no longer able to get out of the way. Right. And I already broke my back. I've had rotator cuff surgery twice. I have a broken elbow. I broke my leg. Not all in sports, but but and then I'm a la- I was a lap swimmer for almost forty years, so my shoulders are shot. Oh my god! So I, I pretty much feel like an NFL player most mornings when I try to get out of bed. I bet you do. Oh my god, you basically were <laughs> in the field, man. Yeah, wow, that is incredible. Okay, so what's your favorite sport? Do you still watch sports and? Everything you know, it's funny. Sports were my entire existence. Not entire. My, I said, going back to my parents, they were very smart because they didn't allow me to just skate. I knew kids who only skated, who had no holidays, who didn't go to school, who skated all the time, had tutors that my parents were like, no, you're not going to do that. They said, you're going to go to camp and you're going to be, in, you know, and then I started being in plays and I I sang, I was in music and all those kinds of things. If I had been a skater, I would never have been allowed to do all those other things. Oh, so while cool. sports weren't my entire life, they were a big part of it. Yeah. And and when I became a, a, an official and a sportscaster, I kind of pushed all the theater and music away. I'm getting back to that now. But um, yeah, I, so now today, the only sport I actually watch on TV is football. Okay. Um, I don't like baseball on TV. If I'm watching baseball, I'm going to go to a game because there's right. something about baseball that's different. But other than that, I don't care so much anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know so what funny. happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, who's your favorite person that you interviewed in the sports world? You know, there were there were a lot. There were some people who were not nice to me, some people who clearly felt I didn't belong. But but the people that stand out were the nice guys like Charles Barkley. Charles was always kind to me, never made me feel like I didn't belong. Um, And that was a nice thing because I had to go in locker rooms. I had to do that thing where I went in there all naked. I mean, it was just my job. Now, I don't believe um, journalists belong in a locker room at all. But the players won't hang around. They sneak out on you. So if I'm going to make my my five o'clock news deadline, I have to go in with everybody else. But locker rooms are disgusting. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Nothing sexy about them. And uh, so, yeah, that was a little it was just part of my world. But back then I was the only woman in there. Today they're women photographers, women producers and that kind of thing. And other women reporters. Back then I was the only one. So, um I don't miss that part. Yeah, I bet. Oh my gosh. So, so uh, Charles was one of my, you ask about uh, the nice guys. Um, do you know who Manute Bowl was? I don't know. He's deceased. Manute Bowl was the tallest man to ever play in the NBA. Oh my gosh. And he, he was a Dinka warrior from the Sudan. He was from Africa originally. And I was sent to cover uh, the NBA playoffs between the Phoenix Suns and the uh, Golden State Warriors. And I was supposed to do a piece on him for the evening news. And and this is not a necessarily nice story about the other men that I worked with. Um, we all hung, all the reporters hung out together. Uh, we, we we stayed in the same hotels. We did all, you know, we, we were all friendly. And we all had drinks after work the night before. And I said, so uh, when's the press conference tomorrow morning? And one guy goes, hey, it's 1030. I said, okay, great. See you there. And my cameraman and I showed up at 10 and the press conference was over. And the guy that told me that is sitting in some seats in the, in the state, in the, uh, you know, where they play. And, and he's got his hands behind his head and his feet out. He goes, Oh, are we a little late for the press conference? Oh, so I'm screwed. I'm screwed. He did it on purpose. Yeah. 
And I went and found the the media director of uh, the Golden State Warriors, who happened to be a woman, which was very rare back then. And I said, I got to talk to Manu Ball. I got a story I have to do. She goes, look, I'm sorry, his day is over. He doesn't have to talk to you, but I'll ask. And I waited about a half an hour and damn if he didn't come out. He was the nicest man. And he's seven, seven. So I'm holding my mic up and I barely hit his chest, right? <laughs> and gave me a lovely interview, got my my work done. And he was just a lovely human being. Here, here's a guy who played in the NBA and gave all his money to the poor people in his village. Wow. And he he died, uh, he died a few years ago of a strange bacterial infection of some kind, but a very nice man. So I remember the people that were kind. Of we had coaches here. I was very fortunate when I came to Phoenix. Um, they threw me right in. I became the uh, beat reporter for the Cardinals, the NFL Cardinals, when they first came here. So I traveled with the team, and I had to be in their locker room all the time. And Gene Stallings was the coach, and uh, Cotton Fitzsimmons was the coach of the Suns, and nobody ever gave me any crap, ever. And I know why. The coaches told them they would not give me a hard time. And so they didn't. Now, that didn't mean the other reporters didn't give me a hard time, but players would either just ignore me. No, I, I never had anybody harass me or give me a hard time because the coaches said, no, you're not going to do that. And they were very kind coaches. So I will always be grateful for that because I read about what other women sportscasters have gone through and I've avoided some of it, not all of it. Sometimes people are jerks. I'll give you an example. I was at ESPN where I anchored Sports Center. And there was a man there uh, named Howie. And Howie, this was before the internet. And Howie, you could go up to him and say, Howie, when was the last time the Jets won by three points in the snow in December at home? And he'd go, oh, that would be 1976. He knew these things. It was it was like a human computer wow. for sports. So everybody could ask him, especially if you're, you know, you're late, and you got to get on the set about a, a fact. So one night I said, Howie, and I asked him a question. And he answered it. And I went on the air and I did Sports Center, and I got called into my boss's office. And he said, why did you say that on the air? And I said, well, Howie told me that that was the fact. Yeah. I turn around, Howie's in the doorway. He goes, I never told you anything. Oh. That kind of stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's crazy. I, can't I have another one. Would you like another one? Yes. Give me another okay. one. So I'm an umpire, right? Uh-huh. I've been an umpire, and I, I was an umpire before I was hired at ESPN. So I'm, I'm live on the Sports Center set, and this intern, like this 21-year-old intern, throws some highlights at me. Now, if you're lucky, you get to see the highlights prior to the show, but that doesn't always happen. So he hands me this, and I go, okay, here, the light goes on. And I go, we're going to Wrigley Field where a fan got hit with a foul tip in the front row. Now, I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but that's impossible. You cannot be hit with a foul tip. so I knew it I knew it was wrong but I had to continue on with the highlights so at the end of every sports center there's something called a post-mortem which means everybody involved in the show goes to a conference room we sit around a table say what was good about the show what was bad what can we prove upon so I waited and finally I said okay Bob to the kid who handed me the highlights here's the deal a foul ball in baseball is a ball that goes out of bounds it's a dead ball right Foul. Everybody goes back to where they were when the pitch happened, and we continue on. A foul tip is a ball that goes from the bat to the catcher's glove, catches it. That's a live ball. That means if somebody's stealing home, I step out of the way and let them score if they can or they make a play because the ball remains alive. Two big differences. So it's impossible to be hit by a foul tip in the front row. Can't be. There's silence at the table. 
And then Bob stands up all indignant and says, you're just being a picky bitch. And I said, no, I'm an umpire. I said, and people know I'm an umpire and ESPN should want to get these things straight. And that's what it is. Never raised my voice, never got angry. Next morning, I got called into my boss's office and ordered to apologize to Bob because I hurt his feelings. If you were a man and said all that stuff, he would have never oh, said a thing. He said, I am so sorry. Right, yeah. But that's that's the kind of crap. So don't get me wrong. There were some very nice people, but there were always those people around. Of course. So I don't, I don't miss any of that at this point. Yeah, seriously. I wouldn't either. My gosh. So I read um, your article, ladies, can we see some pictures of you actually doing something? And yes. I loved it. I loved it. And I'm curious about your experience in the sports broadcasting world in this matter. Like, did you have to look a certain way to be on TV or to be even around? Of guys? course. Ugh. Of course I did. Now, and you know, it's funny. I taught last semester at, at Arizona State and I had, I taught sports reporting, which was interesting because, you know, at the end, one of the kids said, next time they should hire someone younger to teach sports reporting. Okay. I'm like, wow, that's nice. Thank you. Um, but the bottom line is when you are, are in a, a visual medium, it does matter what you look like. So I had two little girls in the, in the class and they said, well, Annie, did they, did you, they change the way you look? I said, of course they did. Every chat station I went to said, we hate your hair. We hate your earrings. We hate your makeup. We hate your clothes. They did. And then they send you to a consultant and the consultant says, cut your hair, perm your hair, wear your hair this way, go here and get better makeup, take off those earrings. And, and you know what? I said, if it's not illegal or immoral, you do what they say because they're paying you and don't get all hysterical about it. My hair has been every possible way it could be. And that's why it's like an inch long now because I know, <laughs> but that is part of it. It is a visual medium. The sad part is that they only hire generally, unless you're an ex-athlete, you know, if you played in the WNBA, yes, you're going to, they don't necessarily care what you look like. If, if you're a former ice skater, they don't care, you know, but for regular old broadcasting, you got to be hot. Yeah. And, and this is what I learned the hard way because I worked for five TV stations locally and nationally. I've been the sports director, regular anchor. I mean, I've, I've done all those jobs. And then when I was pushing 40, nobody would hire me anymore because I wasn't pretty enough to be in front of a camera. And the way it's explained is they say, well, you know, the, the um, target audience in sports is 18 to 34 year old males. So once you're over 34, you're not hot anymore. So, so yes, it was a, it was a difficult thing. I struggled. I, I did a lot of feeling sorry for myself for a while. So I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I wanted my whole life to do this. And now I'm 40 and I'm not pretty anymore. Ridiculous. I know I have a friend yeah. that's a model, and when she turned oh, only, their lives 20, only 21 years old, one of her agencies dropped her. 21 years Yes, old. because they're getting girls at 13 and 14 <laughs> because they want, yeah, it, it's absurd. You know, I, I truly believe that they would hire me for my sports knowledge, um, but as ESPN proved, they did not. Um, and so it's frustrating. Now, in retrospect, they did me a huge favor. Yeah. I, I was on TV for 10 years. Then I went into private video production for four, four or five. And then I became a print reporter. And that was funny because here I'd written for television for 10, 14, 14 years, counting the private stuff. And I saw this ad in the paper because honestly, the only job I could get was officiating. I ended up going from anchoring Sports Center nationally, right, to umpiring Little League 
Oh my gosh. That's because so I couldn't get it. I went into a sports bar. I will. I never forget this. I went in and said, look, you can hire me. I, used to, I was in the restaurant business before I was in television. That, that's how I supplemented my income when I was being an official originally. And I said, I can make a great cocktail and I can talk sports with your, with your patrons and entertain them even when they're sober. And they looked me up and down like they checked out my body and said, no. I'm like, so I ended up doing, I I was just officiating here out here in Arizona. We have football all year, baseball, your kids play sports all year round. I went back to officiating and I was horrified because I didn't want to see anybody I knew. I was embarrassed. I'm like, I didn't want anybody to say, so what are you doing now? And I'm like, I'm umpiring little league. I, I didn't, but the good news was a friend took me aside and said, you should be a teacher. I said, I don't want to be a teacher. He said, well, you've spent your life around high, mostly high school kids yeah. because of officiating. And finally, because I was desperate at 42, I went back to college and I got my teaching degree. And then I, I was hired to teach video production and reporting. But <laughs> Before, while I was in school, I, I still needed an income. So there was an advertisement for a sports reporter's writing job for a small newspaper. I went, great. I applied. They went, oh, no, we can't hire you. You don't know how to write. I said, I wrote for television for 10, 14 years. What? And and they said, well, you know, we're we're journalists here. I said, give me a chance. It was a $7 an hour job. Uh- I begged. And they went, all right, we'll give you a chance. And all of my stories kept ending up on the front page. There you go. And I went, ah, okay. And then another paper hired me. And I ended up working for three newspapers and three magazines. But then I became a teacher. And uh, I did that for 20 years. Wow. Did you love it? Not always. No, I taught Title I school. You know what that means? No. Title I is the kids who live in poverty. Okay. So my, uh, uh, it was a really, it's really bad part of town. It's the most inner city school in our state. Um, lots of kids in foster care, lots of kids, uh, gangs, violence, all kinds of crazy things. Wow. It was very, it was the hardest job I've ever had. And when you consider I was an official and I was a sportscaster, that teaching was the hardest job. And it was because I can make me do anything, right. but to make, you know, 150 kids do things is a totally different deal. And so many of our kids were traumatized because of the lives they lived. That You know, people, people that think, you know, I can give you a lesson and you're supposed to do your homework, but you haven't eaten for two days. That's a whole different deal. So um, I learned to be nicer. (laughs) I had to start teaching. Yeah. Well, you know what? I I was TV, right? And I went in and I'm teaching this class and this little girl stood up. She goes, we don't need you. And the entire class walked out. And I stood, it was my first year teaching and I'm standing in front of an empty classroom and I started to cry. I'm like, what? They left. And, And an old teacher came in and patted me on the shoulder. She said, it'll be okay. Yeah. And then this other teacher took me aside. I'll be forever grateful to her and Miles. And she said, have you ever considered being nicer? I said, nice? What does nice have to do with anything? Nice. No one was nice in the newsroom. They're like, they're children. You should be nice. And I have worked very hard on being nicer. I'm not always nice, but I try harder now. Oh my <laughs> right. 
She was right. I was used to being screamed at on football fields and people writing up me up in the newspaper because they didn't like what I said on TV. I was constantly bombarded with getting my feelings hurt. And I'm like, nice. What the hell? Nice. So I am, I am now nicer. I am. That's amazing. I like that. Very cool. <laughs> so you wrote for newspapers and stuff too. What's Throughout your whole career, what's a favorite thing you've ever had to research? Would you ever have something that you just like dove into a black hole of learning all these things about one thing? Yeah, what I, I wrote for a magazine here. It's it's the most widely spread travel magazine in the world. It's called Arizona Highways. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's all about beautiful photography and places to go. And I I started writing for them, which was a great gig because they'd send you all over on them. And I, I was sent to do a story on a man named the magician. And I found the story. This man was buried 900 years ago outside of Flagstaff, Arizona, in this fabulous tomb full of full of um, jewelry and pots and and crystals and just a magnificent 600 funerary objects. And and the weird thing is they dug them up in 1939. And and back in those days, we put human bodies in museums. We don't do that anymore. That's wrong. Um, but they had an artist there the day they dug him up out of the ground and they drew him and they went, oh my, he looks sort of Caucasian. Now, how is that possible 900 years ago? Yeah. Do the math. I grew up in the Columbus discovered America world, which of course is not true. So I, I had to, they said, find out who you think he was. Where'd he come from? Who was he? And I was like, oh, so I wrote an article like that. And then I turned that into a novel and I love history. I, I, I'm a history buff. And so um, I wrote a, uh, a book called Wolfcatcher, which is about the reporter, the modern day reporter, because everything, I mean, I got the Hopi tribe mad at me. I, I was stupid. I was from the East Coast. I didn't understand the, the situations with Native Americans out here. So I, I learned very slowly that I was not doing things the right way. So my protagonist is a, is a woman reporter who's trying to find out who this man was in modern times. And it runs concurrently with what was happening 900 years ago up in the high desert here. And there was a volcano that erupted. Yeah. And I love that. So I'm really into historical research. Ironically, I have five published books right now, written nine, and um, none of them are about sports. Not one. so funny. When did you start writing books? Um, when I lost my job at ESPN, because um, I was constantly running. When you're a reporter, you never stop. You're pretty much on call all the time. And then suddenly they said, we're not going to renew your contract. Um, and so I was out of a job. Yeah. And I'm living in Bristol, Connecticut, and I'm totally screwed up because I'd been working overnights. Uh, I did the I did the L.A., sh- the, the, the West Coast show from Connecticut. So I worked from seven at night till three 30 in the morning. So I was totally whacked out and I, and I was depressed, I think and I needed something to do. And so I start, I wrote a book called the integrity of the game. That was the one sports book. My ex-husband um, was a baseball, was a minor league umpire. Okay. And so he started telling me stories about major league umpires who were gambling on their own games. Ooh. So I actually took that story to ESPN and they wouldn't touch it. Uh- um, they had just signed a big, their first major sport contract, and it was with Major League Baseball for like $360 million, and this is back in the 90s. So they didn't want any bad stories about baseball. Um, and, and so I wrote that book, and it gave me something to fill the time till I could straighten my brain out and decide I want to come back to Phoenix. So, yeah, that was the first one. And then, um, then I just started writing more. And, 
And I enjoy writing books. I love the research, but all the rest that goes with it, the trying to get things published, the marketing, that's exhausting and not quite as much fun. But I love research. So in my head, even though I'm retired from reporting, I'm still a reporter. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so I, I like to research interesting stories. And that's the problem for me and my agent, except she just retired, um, is that all my books are different genres. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, I've yes, written. so cool. Yeah. So different. <laughs> Historical fiction, women's fiction, young adult fiction, uh, suspense. And it's hard to find a a readership for me because my books are all over the place. But I can't bring myself to write a book I'm not interested in. Yeah, no, don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So where do you – so you most of your books are kind of a little bit based on real stories then? All all of them. All All of them are based on real – yeah, I'm a news junkie, which means I still read a good old-fashioned paper newspaper every day. I watch the news um, probably too much, you know. But but when you spend half part of your life in a newsroom, that's just – you get like that. And so I would find interesting stories in the paper – or I hear them on TV, then I'd research them, let them roll around in my head, and then I'd figure out how do I incorporate these into a story. So yeah, most of them are based on on real things. I have a book, I'm trying to sell it now, it's very difficult to sell, um, it's called Forgotten Sons, and it's about, um, do you know who the Graves units were, the guys in the Graves units? I don't know. Um, if you've ever been to like Arlington National Cemetery okay. in Washington, they've got those cemeteries all over the world with American dead. Well, how'd they get there? Because we have soldiers that that's their job. Oh, wow. they, they, they collect, identify, and bury the dead. And you never see them in any movies, do you? You never Ooh. see them talked about. So my my best friend was having surgery, and she was in Johns Hopkins University Hospital. I'm in Arizona. She's in Georgia. And her husband is a soldier who has PTSD, and he can't handle the hospital. So she said, I need you to come and be my medical power of attorney because she was going to have spine surgery that could leave her paralyzed from the waist down. So it was a, it was very iffy and a difficult surgery. The night before the surgery, she hands me a a plastic bag full of 75 year old letters. And they were from her uncle who did not come home from the war, but was killed mysteriously. And just as the war ended. So her whole family, she, she, feels that Bud, it's, it's Uncle Bud. She goes, you have to promise me, no matter what happens, that you will write a story about Uncle Bud, a book. And so, of course, she walked out of the hospital. She was fine. And I had to write that book, which was horrible because it was, I mean, this. I, I took, I, all the man's records had vanished. There was a fire that destroyed many of our military records back in the 70s. Wow. And uh, I had to follow the postmarks on his letters. So I know he was at Normandy. I know he was at the Battle of the Bulge. I know he was with Patton in Czechoslovakia. He was in Nuremberg. And, and I took his letters and read them. And and he was married to a very strange woman that no one, she was, there was something not not right. Um, and he, he was a happy, handsome man who ended up parking his Jeep on a, on a train track at the war and and so i wrote that book but boy it's hard to get anybody interested because it is gruesome it is horribly gruesome and it need it's not it's not it's gruesome because it needs to be yeah because of what these men had to do i mean they could find a foot yeah. and they have to figure out what to do with the foot whose foot is it how do we identify it where do we bury it and they dug they dug the, you know they built those those cemeteries and if you go to europe there are a bunch of them all around europe 
that are massive uh, World War II dead cemeteries, and they built them. So that's a hard sell, but it's, yeah. it was very interesting, and at least I kept my promise to her. <laughs> I wrote your book. There you go. I guess we'll get it published someday. Oh, my gosh. I could totally read that. That yeah. sounds so it's interesting. Pretty, it's pretty gruesome. Is that What's your favorite book you've ever written? That's hard. It's like saying, who's my favorite child? I know, right? <laughs> um, I like them for different reasons. I have one called Wild Horses on the Salt. Um, which, out here in Arizona, we have a, a wild horse problem. And, and in the West, we have a wild horse problem. They breed indiscriminately. They're everywhere. We're moving, you know, all the homes are moving into their area. They get hit by cars. They're, they, they mess up the rivers. You know, they, the riparian habitats are being destroyed because they're eating all the, the little trees. And, and yet they're magnificently beautiful. They're also starving sometimes and people feed them, but they're supposed to be wild. It's a mess there with the horses as it is all through the West. So um, I, wild horses on the salt, the salt is a river. Um, and then I, I took their story and I combined it with a woman who was uh, escaping domestic violence because I, I went through that myself wow. years ago. And uh, so I wrote about escaping a, a violent partner. And so then you have the two stories of the horses and the, and the woman who comes out to Arizona and, and tries to straighten out her life and she gets involved with the horses. And so I like that one. I also have, um, um, the scent of rain, which is about, um, we have a cult here called the, um, it's a Mormon, it's a Mormon fundamentalist cult where men marry little girls, uh, their prophet had 80 wives. Some of them were 12 and 13. And this was going on five hours from Phoenix, five hours from here. And, and I read about them and I, I took a friend and I said, let's go up and see what we find. And uh, it was frightening. I'm not afraid of much, but I was afraid of that. I didn't even take my camera out because they were following us because we drove around the town and it was, it was creepy as hell. And then I interviewed a woman who grew up there who escaped twice her name is Laura Jessup. Whenever you see anybody discuss these people like on CNN, it's her. She came to my home, sat at my desk. I turned on a recorder. I asked her one question. She talked for two and a half hours. And I was horrified by the stuff she And um, so I wrote, I wrote a book about a young girl living in that world and, and, and what that what life was like for her. So that's the center brain. So, I, you know, I guess I, my answer is I don't have a favorite. I, I know. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to read all of those. God, they sound so cool. I'm a big book reader too. So I'm going to have to get on that. <laughs> mm. So another, every word that comes out of your mouth, there's just more interesting things about you. But another interesting thing about you is you're a scuba diver. Is that right? I am. Oh now that God. is something I can still do. Uh, I can't carry my thing. Um, when I was, I was a Girl Scout and I'm, I loved it. I went to camp every year and, and camp was the highlight of my existence because I was obese when I was a kid. And that back then it was, nobody was obese. There were like one kid in each class, you know? And so kids were mean to me and bullied me and that kind of thing. But when I went to camp, it was beautiful because I, I don't remember learning to swim. I'm an excellent swimmer. And when you went to camp, it was all about swimming. The kids who, you know, I don't know if you ever went to camp, but there's like the red cap kids who are like going to drown. And if you, if they touch the water yeah. green and it goes all the way up to blue. So I was a blue cap at like 12. And then they ran out of caps because they said, well, you can't. So they, they invented a white cap for me and one other girl. So we were allowed free range of every single thing they offered at my camp. And they actually offered scuba diving. Wow. 
And, and so when I was 15, I got certified by the American Red Cross to dive. But then I didn't dive again for 35, 40 years, almost 40, 35 years. So when I turned 50, um, I said, I want to go to Australia to my partner, who's always a good sport, but who's terrified of the water. Now, this guy's a bodyguard. He was a big ass bodyguard, right? Tough guy. He goes, I'm not going in the ocean. I'm like, yes, you are. He said, no, no. He actually got on a boat, went two hours to the Great Barrier Reef, and we're standing there on the Great Barrier Reef. And he's going, I'm not going in. I'm not going in. And, and this little Australian dive master said, what's the matter, mate? And he said, well, when he was a child, he was in the ocean off of California. There was a tiger shark, terrified him, and he never went in the ocean again. Aww. The guy goes, hey, mate, don't worry about that. We don't have any sharks. Saltwater crocs ate all the sharks. And he went, okay, I'll go in. <laughs> so he went in, and we have both been diving ever since. And uh, we got came home, got certified, and... Uh, We've traveled extensively. I've been a very spoiled girl. Um, we've traveled all over the world. And um, we now own a home in uh, St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. Oh. And so so we can go diving whenever we want. <laughs> that is amazing. You know, I am the same way. I love the ocean. I think it's so oh, it's beautiful, beautiful. But I also know it's the most powerful thing on Earth. You and must I'm respect it. I'm terrified of it. But that wow. is a goal of mine. I want to just... At some point, maybe if not scuba diving, even just jumping in the ocean and just like living in the silence for a minute. That's my goal. That is part of the beauty. The part of the beauty is is the quiet or the sounds under there. There are sounds. Yeah. But um, it, the problem is, you know, the reefs are dying. Yeah. And if we don't start straightening things out, there's not going to be any reefs left. And so that it's heartbreaking sometimes for us because we have been fortunate to dive in some of the most beautiful places in the world and they're, they're dying. Um, but if you, uh, you know, it's less dangerous diving than it is crossing a busy street. It really is. Once you take your class and you, you learn the, the rules and you follow those rules and, and what they do is they say, okay, for your first hundred dives, you keep a log and the law it's great. As a teacher, I love this tool because you get out, you talk about what you saw, what you did, what you did poorly, what you did well, and then you learn from that. The only problem is when you get to 100 dives, and Ryan and I are at 100. We're, we're at 98 right now. Nice. The 100th dive is supposed to be done naked. <laughs> That's tradition. That's so, but I don't know how we're going to handle it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, I actually asked a dive master, can they arrest you for being naked underwater? He goes, nope, doesn't apply underwater. I went, okay. Well, all right. So I don't, but yeah, if you ever get the opportunity, the ocean is a magnificent place. And, and I, yeah, it's one of my all time favorite things to do now. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. And so you're also a foster mom, right? I am. That's yeah. incredible. But my kids are grown up. My kids are grown up. Oh, are they? I, they're all in their twenties. I have three sons and a daughter. Um, they all, they were all my students at oh, one wow. point or another. And the, the way I became a foster mom was my oldest son, who's 27 now, I think. Um, he was just this little shy kid. And at the end of the school year, because my kids lived in such bad situations, I would put my phone number on the board and say, look, you get in trouble. You don't know who to call. Call me. I'll do what I can. And this kid started calling me one summer and, and he wouldn't, I sensed something was wrong, but he wouldn't tell me. And, um, Finally, he, he was supposed to be in my class the next year. Because I was a newspaper teacher, They I had kids for four years sometimes. So I got to know my students pretty well. And uh, he he wasn't there. Aww. 
I called his number had been disconnected and he didn't show up for a few weeks. And then a couple weeks into school, he calls me and he says, I'm hungry. I said, what do you mean you're hungry? He said, well, I'm in a foster home and they lock up the food in the morning and the school I'm at now, they say I don't have the right paperwork to have lunch. So I'm hungry. I was horrified. I was so angry. And I went out in the class, out of the hallway and I'm marching up and down the hallway. And the same woman, Ann Miles, who told me to be nicer, said, well, if you're so upset, why don't you call the foster care people and say he can come and live with you? And I went, oh, don't be ridiculous. I was 55. I couldn't have any children. So I'd gotten over that whole idea. But I lived in a house with three empty bedrooms. Yeah. And I'm walking around the house going, this isn't right. This isn't right. And so I called a, a referee I know who's also a judge. And I, I uh, called the foster care people. And because I was a teacher and I already had my fingerprints and everything, my background check, uh, they said, okay. And so two weeks later, they dropped this kid at my doorstep. Wow. And and I had to go to foster mom school for 10 weeks. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. And I'm glad I went. Taught me a lot. And uh, four kids, three kids followed him. Wow. Uh, now, they all weren't my legal foster children. I don't want to misrepresent that. Two were my legal foster children. Uh, the other two, uh, one just decided I was mom. His mother was a drug addicted prostitute. And so he he just decided I was mom. And then the girl is a whole different deal because she, she has a mother. So she doesn't call me mom. The other ones do. Um, so, yeah, and I remain their mom. And uh, yeah, and that's why I'm grateful that the people on TV got rid of me when they did, or I might never never been a teacher and then I might never been a mom. That's so true. Everything happens for a reason. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Do any of them follow in your footsteps? Any of them into sports or broadcasting? Writing? It's funny. They're not into sports. Um, my one son, I'm a mineral collector. That's probably in there in my resume. I have 400 specimens just in my living room. I've collected rocks my entire life. My youngest son is a rocker. Oh, cool. So he and I, matter of fact, we went out last weekend uh, out in the mountains. And then this weekend, my oldest son, who's not really into it, but just likes to drive his truck in cool places, um, we'll all go rocking together. So we do that as family. Strangely, most of them are not into sports. My middle son did play football and wrestle and that kind of thing. But now he's a DJ and a, he's a rapper. My son's That's a, awesome. <laughs> and my oldest son's a DJ. So, um, oh, cool. yeah. And the, and the youngest who just graduated from Arizona State University, which is unheard of. Uh, in fact, his cake said one of the 3%. And that references the fact that just under 3% of kids in foster care ever graduate from college. Wow. So all my kids were in college. They didn't all graduate. But um, my daughter should be graduating sometime soon, hopefully. Uh, but, but yeah, I think they're launched. And considering where they all came from, uh, they're doing pretty well. And I'm proud of all of them. But it's really weird. Sometimes I forget I'm a mom. I'm like, hey, mom. I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay, that's me. Yeah, right. Oh, my God. So funny. Oh, it's amazing. So uh, what advice do you have for women in the cigar industry or really that are going into any male-dominating industry? What advice do you have? What tools did you use to keep standing tall and keep going forward? You must have a thick skin. Yeah. You can't take every comment to heart. Um, and you can't get upset in public. Okay. I'm not telling you, I didn't sometimes go home and cry. I did, but no one saw it. And I know that sounds odd because in this day and age, everybody's all about their feelings and everything, but you can't, you can't let every cruel person know they're getting to you. Yes. Um, I was fortunate maybe in a way, 
Um, many people didn't confront me in, to my face. And I didn't even know this. I was on the, ra- a ra- the radio with a man who actually replaced me at, at uh, the station here when I went to ESPN. And we're live on the air. And he goes, Annie, I want to apologize to you. I'm like, why, Kevin, why? And he said, because I wasn't very nice to you because we were contemporary. You know? And uh, I said, you never did anything bad to me. He goes, I never did it. I did it behind your back. <laughs> so an interesting thing is he now has daughters, right? So they grow up, they have daughters, they go, ah, okay. So um, I would say you, you can't let every, you have to let things just slide off you yeah. unless someone harms you physically or something. But when someone says a mean thing, walk away. Don't even say anything. Don't respond. Um, I think that's important. Also, you're going to get knocked down. Get back up. Yeah. And and try and go home and whine to your loved ones. Don't whine publicly. Yeah. You know, and I, I I've had people be cruel to me. I, I got told no all the time. No, you can't do these things. And you know what? That's a gift. Yeah. Being told no is a gift because I sometimes think if people, if it was going to be easy, if I picked something that was easy, I wouldn't have worked very hard. Exactly. And the thing is, I can't turn it off now. Yeah. I mean, I'm gonna be 68. And and I still feel like I have to prove things. And my partner, Ryan, is like, you don't have to prove anything anymore. I was like, I can't get over that. Yeah, I constantly had to say, you're not going to beat me here. For example, when I was a, a, a football official, um, I don't know if you're a football fan. Do you know how many referees are on a football field? I had no idea. <laughs> uh, that's a trick question okay. because you can always win beer on this one. There's only one. It doesn't matter the level of football. The referee is the one with the white hat. The one that says I have holding number 76 offense, right? The one with the white hat is the referee. That's the crew chief. That's the boss. So when I, my first 14 years officiating, men would let me be on their crews and then they'd throw me off their crews because they said, we're never going to get the big game with you because you're a woman. They were right. I hated that, but they were right. So one year I said, screw it. I'm going to become the referee and crew chief. I'm going to stand up in a meeting of 400 men and say, I have a crew. If you want to work, come and talk to me. And I did that. And, and of course, very few men approached me in the beginning. Mostly guys nobody else wanted on their crews. And I said, look, we're never getting the big games, but we're going to work hard. We're going to have fun and, and we're going to be a team. And over the years, I got, I had a guy worked with me 12 years. I had a guy work with me 10 years. So guys, they stayed knowing they were going to take crap because they were working for me. And I wasn't just an official. I was the crew chief. Yeah. So for my last 24 years of being a football official, I was the crew chief and I, that made me the boss. <laughs> and that I had to do that. I had to do it. Many people don't want to be the referee because that's where the buck stops with you. I'm the one writing the reports at midnight when we throw people out of a game. Yeah. Uh, I'm the one that the boss calls when he when when we made some kind of call he didn't like. Um, so a lot of people don't want to be the referee. And I just went, screw it. I will be the referee. And if you don't want to work with me, don't. Don't. Yeah. So that's the thing is, you know what you want and you're knowledgeable in the subject. People will will respect you. Well, and the other thing is be prepared. Okay. I'm not going to tell you I knew everything about every sport, but I was smart enough to try to find information. And, and for women, especially, Mm -hmm. I, I was reading something recently about another woman sportscaster who did a spread in very little clothes, right. And lingerie. Human body is a beautiful thing, but what does that do to your credibility? What does that do? 
it says that's all you are. And no matter how smart she was, no matter what kind of reporter she was, that's not a good choice. Right. And that was listening to her. Everyone was watching her. (laughs) Well, and and, and I understand they put people, women especially on there because they're beautiful. But if you want to be taken seriously, don't take your clothes off. And please, you read the article that I wrote. Um, All these young ladies who are posting pretty much naked photos of themselves online, that's going to, when you go apply for a job, they're going to look up your Facebook and your Instagram. And and my students used to say, well, I won't tell them. I'll put that without my password. I said, they will sit there and say, what's your password? And you can say, I'm not giving it to you. And they could say, thank you very much and drop your resume in the trash. Yeah. So don't think think all this stuff on the internet is going to go away. It's never going away. So you have to be very careful. I mean, I have very strong held beliefs on politics and religion. Never on, I never post any of that. Yeah. It's not relevant. Exactly. Okay. Um, you post relevant things and you have to, I, I just feel that young ladies need to firm up their knowledge and understand that it's not all about being pretty. I mean, it is to a certain extent, but not naked pretty, if you know what yes. I mean. Yes, not all about impressing men or getting male attention. Like, yeah, and but we are. I mean, it, the point is, you should be hired for your knowledge right. or your writing skills. Yeah, I did get told that women hired. deserve. They deserve to be. Yeah, you earn this knowledge. not by taking off your clothes. That's easy. Anybody can do that. Yeah. So, so I, I, I want young ladies to think about that. To think about how they're presenting themselves. I mean, if you're a college student right now and you want to be in broadcasting, please don't do that stuff. Please. Because every single employer will Google you. Mm-hmm. You need to Google yourself once in a while to see what's out there. And if there's not something that your mother would be proud of, please don't do it. Yeah. That's you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, this was perfect. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. You are a very impressive and successful woman. I'm so glad. Even though I don't smoke cigars, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. You don't have to. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is perfect. Is there anything else you want to share with anyone? No, but Where I'd like to talk to you after we record. Yes, please. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you so much for sharing your story. That was unbelievable. And thank you to everyone listening. Stay tuned. Next week, we'll have Joe Gatto on from the TV show From Scratch. I'll talk to you all soon. If you want to support the Ashes with Ash podcast and help grow this community through storytelling, go to www.anchor.fm slash ashes with ash slash support.